morning. Hope you're doing well. My name is Aaron, and I'm married to Trina, my bride of almost 15 years. And I have, uh, oh, okay. Uh, and I have three boys, uh, Ezra, Kai, and Isaiah. Uh, I serve at Armenian Christian Fellowship in Orange County. Uh, that's why I can't stay for lunch to be with you. Like last time, I need to drive over um, and preach there as well. And about a year and a half ago, my wife and I launched a ministry called Remain. I mentioned it last time I was here, and I see that our little infographic cards are on the free resource table. You can pick it up if you'd like a copy. Uh, remain because we want to come alongside people to encourage them to remain uh, in their hard seasons to remain in Christ. Uh, in light of our story over the last decade, we felt like we wanted to be a good kind of steward with what we've been through, so we felt God's call to launch that. Uh, I'm working on my third devotional in that. And also, I'm running a few small groups for husbands. So if you're interested in either, um, come see me, or you can send me a line at remainwithus at gmail.com. Uh, um, I was here, this is the fourth time I was here, I think late September or early October. Um, and as I said, you know, I have my wife and three boys, so there's five of us, but during our last visit was one of the last few days that we were five. Because on October 18, uh, Isaiah Orion was born, and he was with us for three hours and eight minutes. He was given a life-limiting diagnosis. We knew that for six months. So I preached on, I believe, from Isaiah 40 to you guys uh, on God's providence and greatness, because that's what I needed. And this message here, this passage is one of the few things that has sustained me over the last four months uh, well, over the last year, and I preached this to myself, for myself, but I preached this a few days before his celebration of life service. So I felt it was just burden on my heart in light of what you know, like kind of my visits here are sandwiched between that event, so I wanted to preach from 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. The verses are in your bulletin. Let me pray for you before we get into this. And so, Father, we're grateful that we can come and both lament and hope at the same time as we remembered from our liturgical reading. Um, thank you that you are a God who sees our sorrows, who walks with us in our pain, and at the same time, you're a God who provides much hope. In Christ, you provide much hope. And so, Father, for those who are sitting and sinking in sorrow over this last season, this last week, or this last year. Um, I pray that your word would be used by your spirit to minister to them. I pray, Father, that we would find real hope here, not one Sunday on Easter once a year, but every time we gather that the cross and resurrection would be our anchor. And so, Father, I pray that you would do a great and much-needed work in the hearts of all those who are here. In Jesus' name, amen. Death is not the end. If you're going to leave today holding on to just one point from today's message, that was it. Death is not the end. Death is not the end of the story. It is only a cliffhanger. 
The point in the story when it seems that all hope is lost, the hero is done for, evil is spread too far, and nothing seems right. Things are not right yet, so that is not the end, because in the end, all will be made right. So this is not the end, this is just a cliffhanger, troubling yet with assurance that there is hope. Death is not natural, it is unnatural. You, yes, people have been dying from the beginning. We see death around us from war and sickness and old age, but it is not the norm. It is traumatic and terrifying. It is monstrous. Not part of the natural order. It is an interruption of it. Death is not an executioner because in Christ, it became a gardener. The poet George Herbert said that. So we don't simply bury Christians, we plant them. Paul said that these bodies are sown perishable, shall be raised imperishable. Death, death is not a monster. Not a foe that cannot be beaten. In fact, through the cross and resurrection, it is defeated. It is a toothless beast that cannot eat you. Death is a defeated and conquered enemy. Over the last few months, I've been reading portions of a liturgy book called Every Moment Holy. I think what we read was from that. Not planned, it just happened. Volume two is, is death, grief, and hope. Here's one line. Death will not have the final word, so we need not fear to speak of it. Death is not a period that ends in a sentence. It is but a comma, a brief pause before the fuller thought unfold into eternal life. But we don't like to talk about that these days. We avoid talking about death. We assume that if we ignore it, it'll go away. That we can protect our loved ones from such conversations. We assume that nothing good comes from talking about death. And yet Solomon said it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of laughter because wisdom is found there, but we just don't buy it. But if ignoring death maybe is more harmful to us than we think, a few months ago, during the season, I was reading a, um, more about all this. I came across this quote by D.A. Carson, the theologian. He said this, Well-intentioned but poorly informed brothers and sisters who try to deflect people from thinking about death or who hold out the constant hope of healing keep them so occupied with matters in this world that they have neither the time nor the energy to think about the next world. They succeed only in robbing their loved ones of the enormous comforts of the gospel as they step into eternity. In other words, if we keep avoiding this topic, if we keep ignoring it, if we keep changing the topic, we're robbing people from actually believing and resting in future eternal hope. We're missing out on enormous gospel comfort. We shouldn't, we can't avoid this. It will come when we least expect it. Let us not forget the number of funerals we've attended the last few years. We cannot and will not forget these loved ones. And so today, we'll start with death, because we need this, because there is hope even with this. I said earlier, death is not the end, but it sure feels like it, doesn't it? I think those of us who have lost the loved ones would agree, it feels like the end. You have a funeral, and that's it. The body is laid to rest, the coffin buried, the grass placed over the place once more. That's it. People move on, 
and it feels like the end. You are not sure if and when you will feel somewhat normal again, if and when you will laugh again or have peace again or be lighthearted again, when the heaviness and exhaustion from sorrow will be lifted. Death really feels like the end. And so to those in grief now, to those who have walked through such grief in the past, to those who need to know to help others in grief, to those who will face grief one day, listen carefully. Death is not the end because Jesus rose again, and those in Christ will rise as well. How tragic in the church that we consider the resurrection one Sunday a year. 365 days, 52 Sundays, one's enough. Really? Well, we have too many other holidays, religious, cultural, and national. The calendar is too full. We'll give you one Sunday. Friends, we won't survive our grief over death if we think about the resurrection just once a year. Let's finally let go of that custom. 1 Corinthians 15 is devoted entirely to doctrine, especially actually one doctrine. This section of 58 verses is the most extensive treatment of resurrection in the Bible. It seems the issue here was not that the people were doubting the resurrection of Jesus, but were confused of, of what it meant for them. Paul says in verse 12, Jesus rose again. How can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? And so having reminded them of the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ, he now comments on the significance what if there is no resurrection? What if there is a really a resurrection? And at some point in the chapter, he transitions from answering the what question to the how question. Verse 35, how? How are the dead raised? To the people, the resurrection seemed impossible, inconceivable. To help them, Paul addresses how. That's the question for today. How, how does one get across from one to the other side. The kingdom is imperishable. It is impossible. It is, it is inappropriate for the perishable. Our old body is unfit, incompatible with the heavenly. So how? How are the dead raised? Perishable to imperishable. How? will be instantly changed, but how? The victory comes from Christ because Christ is the foundation. And so his resurrection is the foundation and brings assurance of our future resurrection. Our passage today, 50 to 58, is so, so good. It can't simply be studied. It has to be sung. In fact, this passage is included in Handel's Messiah. December of 2011, for Trina's birthday, I got us tickets for Handel's Messiah. Now, keep in mind, uh, our older son, Ezra, was just like three months old. We hadn't slept in three months. And so we sat in the back of the Disney Philharmonic, and we listened. And classical music uh, is not her love language. Um, and so I bought the tickets primarily for me, but also because it was Handel's Messiah. So the music was so beautiful that we both almost fell asleep. I think we did at some point. But at the end, the entire crowd stood up, and we woke up. We stood up too at the Hallelujah Chorus because they sang this passage. The passage tells us that because of the resurrection of Jesus, which is the foundation and which brings Assurance of ours, death is not the end. In our broken hearts, we must connect the mortuary with the empty tomb, the funeral service with the resurrection Sunday. The dots must be connected between life ending here and what happens after that. There's no other way. 
Because of the resurrection, death is not the end. This raises two questions that we need to address today. What does does our resurrection look like? But hold on, before that, how has death been defeated to begin with? So what is this hope that we have, and where does that hope come from? What is the hope we have, where does that hope come from? The first question is answered in 50 to 53, and the second question in 54 to 57. So where does, where does our hope come from? What does our resurrection look like? Follow with me if you have your Bible. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. How does it end? With a resurrection. Contrary to teachings floating around at that time, it all ends with a resurrection. Some believed in soul sleep. So the physical body disintegrates, but the soul just sleeps, just rests forever. Or that the soul is just absorbed to where it came from. Or that the body and soul just are just done away with, total annihilationism. Someone pressed the delete button and that was it. Or or others believe that the the soul will just come back in another form of life, recycled, better, or for worse, as a reward or punishment. In Greek culture, there was this belief that while the soul was good, the body was evil. So death was an escape. It was an escape from the prison of the body. But Paul says something different here. He speaks of a real and future bodily resurrection with fullness of life. Paul addresses how. How can flesh and blood inherit the kingdom? There seems to be this insurmountable chasm between earth and heaven, between our physical and glorified bodies, what we are now and what we will be then. We get tired. We need a nap. We get sick. We need vitamins. We need essential oils. We get old and frail. We die. But eternal life is different. Higher in quality and quantity. There's no sin there. There's no sickness there. There's no death there. Is there any connection between Easter and the funeral service? Can the first bring hope for the second? Four times Paul says in this passage, comparing the perishable with the imperishable. Earlier we gave the picture of a seed. A seed is planted. It dies before it sprouts with life. Death and then life. Look at how Paul lists the differences. Verse 42, perishable, imperishable. 43, dishonor raised in glory. Exists in weakness raised in power. Natural, then spiritual. In 45 and 47, we read that we're in the first Adam, a a living being from the earth, and so we are in Christ, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit from heaven. 48-49 says that those who are of the earth bear the image of the man of dust, and those who are of heaven shall bear the image of the man from heaven. And he compares the mortal, the immortal. What we have here is far more weak and different than the bodies we'll have in the kingdom. 
of God. The kingdom is not referring to this general rule over creation, nor his spiritual rule over the hearts of believers now, but in a sense, both. The kingdom of God is the reign of God through Jesus, the purpose of which is the redemption of his people, and beyond that, the restoration of all things. The kingdom is the reign of God through Jesus, the purpose of which is the redemption of his people and the restoration of all things. So God's kingdom is breaking through, spreading during the first coming of Christ. And that kingdom will be final, complete, and perfect at his second coming. And so while we're walking in sickness and weakness and death, death will not be the end. We will inherit the kingdom. We will be given possession of real endless life. It is his life, he will give it to us as an inheritance. Peter says, it will never perish, spoil, nor fade, reserved in heaven, being guarded by the power of God. And Paul says that life here is like a tent, but what's coming is a building. And so how, 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 if we are perishable and mortal, and the verse says imperishable and immortal, the question is how, the answer is in 51. Behold, listen. This is a mystery. Not something confusing, but something that was hidden and now revealed through Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus shed light on the areas of confusion and uncertainty regarding the resurrection of believers. This is good news for us. Our hope is that we will inherit the kingdom. We will be raised from the sleep of death. We will be utterly changed and transformed. This raising to new life, this inheritance of the imperishable, this transformation to a glorified body, this future resurrection will happen instantly. In a moment, flash, the, the Greek word is connected to the word for Adam, the smallest conceivable quantity, in this case, the smallest amount of time. So this is not a process, it is not a slow metamorphosis, it's an instant reaction, a sudden burst of new life. As fast as our eyes blink, as fast as the hummingbird flaps its wings, which I heard is 70 times a second. So instantly, the resurrection is coming suddenly and quickly, and it will come at the last trumpet. If you comb through the Old Testament, references to this trumpet, is, it has to do with getting the attention of the people because God is there. God is coming. And so whether you read uh, Joel or, or Jesus' words in Matthew or Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4, trumpet means the end is coming, God is coming. During the Civil War, there was a group of soldiers who had to spend a winter night without tents in an open field. During the night, it snowed several inches, and at dawn, the chaplain reported a strange sight. The snow-covered soldiers looked like mounds of new graves. And when the bugle sounded the reveille, a man immediately rose from each mound of snow, dramatically reminding us of this passage. As the soldiers woke up and got up, those in Christ will be woken and raised and restored from death as well. Believers will be raised from sleep, inherit a glorified body, changed and transformed, clothed with new life. Verse 52 says that the mortal will put on and must be clothed with immortality. This must happen. And verse 54 says, this will happen. So the question was, what does our resurrection look like 
It is, it is not wishful thinking. It is really going to happen. This is about our hope. And the second question addresses where this hope is coming from. We, we see the resurrection, but we need assurance. Is this real? Are we really going to have a future resurrection? That message is grounded on the resurrection of Christ. So what is the victory of Christ? That takes us to 54. Where is the assurance? How do we know this will really happen? Well, that takes us to 54. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. This points our attention back to the Old Testament because the resurrection is not a doctrine that shows up at the end of the gospel accounts for the first time. It's seen as something throughout the Old Testament, this being just one reference. Death swallowed up in victory. Listen, this one line sustains a person in the darkest seasons of sorrow. One verse, one line. Coming from Isaiah 25, one man's testimony of God's deliverance is then followed by a description of this coming banquet from a most generous host. And right in the middle of that joyful news of this banquet, Isaiah says this, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So in the same sense that the redeemed will swallow up the richest of foods and delicacies during the messianic banquet, God will swallow and gulp down death. And sadness will be gone. The last tear will finally be wiped away. The one word I want to draw your attention to is swallow. It means to be drowned. It means to devour. It means to overwhelm. Imagine your child swallowing a bag of Halloween candy as soon as you enter the room. They stuff it all in their mouth. It's gone. Think of a wild beast from that animal documentary that's completely devouring the prey. Death is not simply de depleted of its power. It's literally swallowed up, never to be seen again. Death will not simply be stopped. It will be totally undone. In verse 26, Paul said, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Revelation 21, Death shall be no more. Death will die. I wonder if death knows that. It's going to die soon. I found the following quite comforting, especially in a season like this. One scholar said it this way. What looks like a victory for death and like a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies will live. I got to read that again. What looks like victory for death and like defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies will live. This grand reversal is coming. And since that is the case, with a slight tone of mockery, Paul says, Oh, death, where is your victory? 
Oh, death, where's your sting? Or one paraphrase says, who got the last word, oh, death? Oh, death, who's afraid of you now? He's referencing Hosea where the words were almost an invitation for death to come and bring judgment on the people. But here, in light of the cross and resurrection, it's all rewound, undone, reversed. So death, where are you? Remember, death is not the end because of the resurrection of Jesus. We can have assurance of our own as well. We saw our resurrection in the first section, and this is grounded on the second point, on the resurrection of Jesus. So again, we're answering the how question. How can we have assurance? How can our hearts be steadfast on the news of the resurrection while we're attending that funeral? How can we be a church that lives with such living hope in the midst of sickness, suffering, death of various members and family members and loved ones over the last few years? How? 56, 57. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin. Sin is the sting that leads to death. Sin gives death its power. Sin is what makes death so scary. If death is the needle, sin is the poison that infects and kills. Romans 5 says that in Adam, sin came into the world and death through all. All sinned and all died. The sting of death is sin. And to go further, he says the power of sin is the law. Wait, sting, death, sin, these are all bad words. But what about the law? Is that bad as well? No. The law is holy, wise, and good. The law reveals the heart and mind of God. The law is the straight ruler next to our crooked hearts. The law cannot save. The law shows that we need to be saved. It brings awareness of our sins. It shines light on our sins. And so the law reveals our sins and the law condemns our sins. We cannot utterly, cannot please God by obeying the law. We will fail miserably 100% of the time. The law doesn't bring life, but condemnation. Not only that, but the law provokes further sin. We break the law, and with twisted hearts, we love breaking the law. And we want to break it further. And so where does that lead us? In condemnation and death. But God. But God. But God. There is a reason why this phrase is one of the four top values of our ministry of Remain. But God. All doom and gloom, sin and condemnation and death, but God. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us this victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the building of our assurance will not topple because this is our foundation. The storms of our days will not leave us shipwrecked. This is our anchor. You see, the law of God that's holy, righteous, and good is, when Jesus, is what Jesus came under. Adam disobeyed. Jesus obeyed. He perfectly, fully obeyed the law. He actively did right during his life and wholeheartedly surrendered and laid down his life for us. The imperishable became perishable on our behalf. The immortal became mortal on our behalf. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was our substitute. Condemned in our place bore our guilt and shame, carried our sins, drank the cup of God's wrath entirely for us, and with his death, he defeated death. 
While writing this sermon, I was listening to the song Death in His Grave. The chorus, on Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in grief, but woke with the keys of hell on that day. First born of the slain, the man Jesus Christ lay death in his grave. What happened to death? If death is the most painful sting, Jesus absorbed the venom already. The sting is broken, drained of its power. If death is a ferocious bear, he declawed it. If death is a poisonous snake, he defanged it. If death is a wicked enemy, he disarmed it. Are you with me? For you and me, death is still part of our story, but death is a defeated enemy. He put death to death so that death is not the end of the story. Verse 20, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he as the first fruit. His resurrection is not only the prototype, but also the guarantee of our future resurrection. More is coming, friends. For those of us in Christ, that future power, will, which will one day make all things new, brings spiritual resurrection with our conversion, but also a physical resurrection on the last day. Let us not... Be afraid of talking about death. Let us fully grieve over those we've lost. Let us truly lament instead of hiding or being bitter or settling in unbelief. Let the church be a place to weep together. But also, let us rest in the living hope that we have in Jesus. Let us reflect on and rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus daily. In his new book on the resurrection, Pastor Tim Keller said this, The resurrection means not merely that Christians have a hope for the future, but that they have a hope that comes from the future. The Bible's startling message is that when Jesus rose, he brought the future kingdom of God into the present. It is not yet here fully, but it is here substantially. And Christians live an impoverished life if they do not realize what is available to them. Guys, we have a hope not just for, but from the end. Hope not simply for, but from. Have you thought about this? Will you stop avoiding the topic of death, realizing the massive comfort that we have in Christ? Will you start considering our resurrection daily throughout the year instead of that one Sunday? Will you trust in Jesus who conquered death to give you hope as you try to process the grief of the death of a loved one? Will this be a community that gives thanks even, even in this? The verse said, thanks be to God. Imagine a heart of thanksgiving before, during, and after a funeral. Just a few days after Isaiah was born and then died, I needed to write reasons for thanksgiving. I wrote down 50. It was too risky to miss God's hand in this. I had to, for the sake of my lament and my hope. Thanksgiving redirects our hearts back to God and brings us joy and peace. There's no peace without it. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, which brings the foundation and assurance of ours, death is not the end. And here's the final verse. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Hmm. 58 sits on verses 1 to 57. The therefore in this verse starts 
with, which is, uh, with that, and it's directly and based on the teaching till now. Because Jesus lives, because in him we too shall rise, guys, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. This is where we go from here. This is the practical application that we need thus far. Listen, be steadfast, stay settled, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Like a house with a solid foundation that withstands the floods in the midst of the storm. Like a tree with deep roots that won't move after the tornado. We must stand and abound in the work of the Lord. To go out and serve unreservedly and wholeheartedly. The word carries out the idea of exceeding the requirements of overflowing and overdoing. Let us abound in the work of the Lord. Let us not engage in the work of the Lord because there's a need. There's always a need in the church. Not, well, if you don't, who will? You're gifted. There's an unspoken expectation here. We can serve because we owe God. We cannot repay all that he has lavished us with grace. Guilt is a horrible motivation for ministry. No, our motivation for every believer engaged in this work is verse 58. And so whether it be leading worship, or sharing testimonies, teaching youth groups, showing hospitality to the lonely, being merciful to those in suffering, caring for the widows, giving generously, serving whenever and wherever is needed, sharing the gospel, leading with zeal, counseling, comforting, encouraging, or a dozen other things we engage because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, the work is never pointless. Because of the resurrection, we're building far more than we can see. Because of the resurrection, we have divine presence and power available. There's real hope and fruit in our labor. Because of the resurrection, we can endure because a great reversal of all pain is coming. Because of the resurrection, we can spend and be spent. Because this life here is not it. The fullness of life is coming, and we ought to be good stewards of our days. Because of the resurrection, any suffering in ministry is not the worst thing, and death is not the end. In the late 18th century, an Englishman named Henry Martin, God used the death of his father and the faithful encouragement of his sister to bring him to salvation. At age 21, a sermon on missions and the work of William Carey urged him to be a missionary. With the Bible in my hand and Christ at my right hand strengthening me, I can do all things, he said. Age 25, he moved to India and served alongside William Carey. His plan was to get settled and then invite Lydia to marry him. He waited 15 months for her response. God rejected. He didn't let that deep sorrow to hold him back. He said, I feel no wish to live except to be employed in that work for which Christ has died. After a few months of mission work, he says this, I have hitherto lived lived too little a purpose, more like a clod, like a lump of soil, than a servant of God. Now let me burn out for God. Hmm. Based on verse 58, he says, let me burn out for God. He did considerable work in the area of Bible translation and significant Christian material. He was so sure of the powerful help of God that he was ready to face suffering, death, and burnout, all with hope. And even now, 200 years later, his journals and letters are a huge source of encouragement. Our labor is not in vain because Christ has risen, we shall rise as well. And so we ought to and can remain steadfast and abound in the work that he's given us 
because of the resurrection, how do you finish that sentence? Because death is not the end, dot, 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 what would you say? We can grieve, but not like those who have no hope. We can stop avoiding the topic of death and consider our own life, not with fear, but with peace. We can face and walk through our darkest days of sorrow when we lose a loved one because death is not the end. Funerals are not goodbyes, they're simply see you soons. Because of the resurrection, the work of Jesus, the word of Jesus on the cross, it is finished, can be trusted. Ministry has purpose. There's assurance of fruitfulness. Preaching is powerful, not in vain. Our faith will not crumble. Because of the resurrection, we can be a people of robust joy and sincere worship. How will you finish that sentence? Because death is not the end. A cliffhanger, not the end. Let me close with this, the final paragraph of the seventh book from Chronicles of Narnia. I saw the book on the shelf there. This is how the book ends. If I'm giving it away, it's okay. <laughs> and for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Father, we need this, we needed this, and we're going to need this. I thank you for this reminder that because of the resurrection of Jesus, death is not the end. And that changes everything. And so, Father, for those in grief, I pray that they would be encouraged to lament and to cry out to you and to pour out their doubts and questions and pain before you. And I pray, Father, for as a church that we would continue to hope in the resurrection. This would be our assurance and our foundation. In Jesus' name we pray.